This episode of Meet Me for Coffee with Kenny Aronoff is brought to you by Coffee Cola on a hot day like today. I take a sip like this because I'm a coffee fiend, man. But I know, I know being in the studio, uh, yeah, espresso. We'll get you some Coffee Cola too, man. It oh, is, man. This is good. It's refreshing. It's, it's like a soda, but it's infused with coffee taste. Smells like coffee. It mixes well with like a nice bourbon with your friends. Uh, on a on a Friday night or in the studio, and plus it doesn't make you thirsty, dude. It doesn't make you thirsty. I know how it is to play live. I know how it is to record all day and work all day and have that pop or coke or what at lunch, and then you get all thirsty because of the fucking syrup. Well, and salt. Yeah. So coffeecolacanada.com. The show is also sponsored by a brand new app, Chatter Three Sixty Five. It's an app for your iPhone, Android. It helps you keep in contact for business, family, and your community. Has anti-trolling software, which means, Kenny, I can't tell you to F off over over text message. It blocks me. It blocks me for sending you har- harassing uh, messages cool. and uh, ask me to reword things. And a good thing, say, for example, I'm from Quebec, and they all speak French, and I want to text you in French there will be no translation. It'll automatically translate to you in English and then translate back to me in French, which is amazing. You can check them out, chatter365.com. So, Kenny, the story behind the sunglasses, I, I forgot mine. This, this, this light's really beating down on me. Why do you wear sunglasses? Well, I was, it started when I was on the Adore Tour, the Smashing Pumpkins, Adore Tour, 1998. And it was the first show I did at the Metro in Chicago. And my son was a huge Pumpkins fan, so I made sure he, I, I got him there. And I was wearing a very tight like black shirt, like this actually, with, but it had yellow stripes down the side. And my son had these yellow goggly glasses with big uh, black frames from Urban Outfitters clothing store. And literally, as I'm about to walk on stage, he says, hey, Dad, I think these would look good on you. I put them on. The next day in the newspaper, they mentioned me, me, Mellencamp drummer, playing with the Smashing Pumpkins, and then they just started talking about my glasses. So I went, oh, I guess I'll keep trying to do that. So I did the whole tour wearing glasses, shaved my head. It was real short at that point. And all of a sudden, I was creating this new look. And then I decided, you know, I realized that from a marketable or a branding thing, you only see from here what you're seeing right now. So glasses are a big part of this picture. And then I started getting weirder glasses and weirder, and people kept talking about them. And then at one point, I went, this is stupid, man. These glasses are starting to get a little bit weird. So I stopped wearing them, and I got more shit for not wearing glasses, people would say, I drove five hours to see what glasses you were going to wear. So I went, I'm wearing glasses. <laughs> so, so how many pairs do you own then? Well, I did own like about 50 and they're very expensive, but I keep losing them. <laughs> I lose them. And I, and these, these are products I got. I try to get my glasses in Europe, you know, if I'm traveling because there's a good, better chance that you don't have them here. Uh, and so that's, I did. I had some cool Ray-Bans. They only were limited edition that were kind of, uh, you know, they were all these kind of multiple colors, uh, like uh, kind of like Paisley, you know, 60s, and I lost them. And there were not that many of them. And the only guy I know who has a pair like that was Steve I. 
and he got him in Russia. Well, being on the, the Smashing Pumpkins tour, you, they would think that you're like Joe Satriani on, the, on those drums, eh? Yeah. You lose some scrap, scraps and uh, put the sunglasses on, and then you're playing with chicken foot. Yeah. So that, that would have been kind of, kind of weird to see that from far away, but people know who you, who you are now. Yeah. You know, Joe, uh, I, I, I was over in, in Australia with John Fogarty, and uh, the, the G3, Guitar 3, was, was playing at the same festival. And so I got in uh, the night before, and I went to it, and it was uh, Steve Lukather from Toto, Steve Vai, and Joe Satriani. And Joe looked at me. I was on the side of the stage, and he was about to go out. He says, hey, hey stand over here. Took his guitar off, put it on me took his glasses off, put them on me, says, go out there. <laughs> I yeah. went out there, and the audience went, yay! And then they, I think they started to look at my muscles. They went, hey, wait a minute. No. And then as soon as I hit the guitar, they knew I wasn't Joe Satriani. But that was, I, I thought that was great humor with Joe. Well, let's talk about your projects. How, how does, when you record a number one hit, something huge like Jack and Diane or one of the songs I really hate, uh, Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. You know, hearing that, being in the radio business for you know, a long time, you get really tired of songs. Actually, I was one of the guys who put, you know, you asked me to play Uptown Funk one more time. It costs <laughs> 50 bucks. Um, <laughs> it, it, it just, I love the song. It's great. Yeah. Bruno Mars is great. Mark yeah. Ronson is great. Um, but when, when it comes down to having a number one hit, how does, how does the royalties get split up with you? Because you're the drummer. You yeah. didn't ultimately write the lyrics to it. So how does that, how does that work with you in previous experience, John well, Melkamp? And- well, typically, what, what, what used to be the way, you just get paid for the day. That's it. Uh-huh. And then, uh, then countries like Canada, UK, Australia, Germany, Japan, I mean, I, I don't know what order. They started going, wait a minute. Um, these guys, uh, the musicians, uh, should get paid a little something. So I started getting checks, and it was based on how many, you know, the airplay of these songs. And, you know, it, it, can, it can add up. Not huge, but it's great. And so I, the USA just uh, fought, jumped on board because suddenly two years ago I got a pretty good-sized check. And it was, uh, and they listed the songs. It was all Mellencamp songs. I went, oh, they finally pushed that law through. Another way I would get a check was when you, when there were budgets, which there aren't anymore. And I used to be in the big studios seven days a week, seven days a week, book months straight. I mean, there's one situation where I did like a a Monday with B.B. King and Bonnie Raitt doing a uh, Van Morrison song for Air America. Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, uh, a box set for Elton John. Thursday through Sunday, um, uh, Bob Seger record. Then I flew from L.A. to Athens, Georgia, did the Indigo Girls for a week. Then I flew back to L.A. and landed and did Willie Nelson for a day. Then I did four days with Seger, then two days with Bon Jovi doing Blazer Goy, and it went on and on and on. And I had two drum sets in Nashville, L.A., New York, Lots in Indiana where I was living, a set in Japan, set in, in Germany. And I was booked every day for months. And so that's because they had big budgets. I flew first class. I got a rental car, fancy hotels, a per diem. It was because, I mean, I'm th- think about this. I'm on three records that sold 40 
million copies. Two of them was Celine Dion's record, and the third one was Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell 2. The, 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 the record labels are making 82 cents, 85 cents on the dollar. 85 cents times 40 million, do the math. There's a lot of money that they can spend for marketing, getting on the radio, uh, making the record, uh, videos, getting great session players in there. So that made it accessible for me. Now, when you did a session in those days when you had the big budgets, you had to fill a card out or paperwork for the music union. The music union made sure you got a, a pension health and welfare, pension, and this thing called, and once you signed it, there was this thing called special payments that you would get as a session musician. And it depended on how well, I think on how well the record did, but what it was was there was a, they, the, the, the label had to pay the union dues and the union would give what, uh, like kind of like a, a bonus for being on, these big records, you would get a little, like a little residual. And that would add up, man. I mean, people were doing like big, especially movies. They were making big bucks, big, huge amounts. But I would get like, a, I don't want to say the figure, it wasn't a year's salary, but it was like a bonus kind of thing. And that is all gone. That special payments is all gone because the records I make in my studio, Uncommon Studios, we're not going through the union because there's, it's a it's a people paying out of their own pocket now. So that special payments is gone. But that residual for me being on a, a radio with Belinda Carlisle, so I think it's based on spins, and I will get at the end of the year a little residual. And I'm on a lot of hit records. Oh, I know. And just if I were to start naming them all off right now, we'd be here probably another six hours. Yeah. How do you ridiculous. get how, how do you study the music that like when somebody says I want you on my tour starting in two days. Can you, can they hire you right now? And you have yeah. to, how do you figure out the music? How do you go into write, a room? I write every single note out. I don't know anybody who writes as anal as I do. I write every note out. My, for the people who don't know this, I had five years of intensive, intensive classical training. Cause back then there was no school of rock. There was no nothing. It was, there was no rock and nothing. It was all new. So when my parents asked me, what do you want to major in when you go to college? I went, well, music. And all there was was classical or jazz. And I picked classical because I had started studying a little bit with the Boston Symphony Orchestra percussionist because they were, the Boston Symphony Orchestra was three miles from my house in the summer. And one of my friends was studying with this guy. And that's where I learned marimba and timpani and uh, I played in orchestras, I played an opera every semester, I played percussion ensemble, did four years of music theory, four years of music history and literature, did sight singing, conducting, piano. I mean, this school, Indiana University, to get in is hard, hard, but to get to stay in is even harder. It's the number one school in America. Anyway, a long story short, I eventually end up in the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra and turn it down because I wanted to pursue my love and passion, which was rock and roll. And I speak about this when I give lectures on follow your passion, follow your truth, follow your who you are, because when you, you, you follow 
who you are and why you are here, you will be unstoppable like me. You'll be undeniable like me. You'll be authentic. You, I can't stop myself from working. It's I, I love getting up in the morning and, and doing the sessions and the podcast and the writing charts. And uh, when we get off, I'm going to record five songs today for four different artists. I've written every single note out so I can go and just perform. But I'm the guy who doesn't want to turn the lights off at night because I'm digging what I'm doing. That is living your life from your truth and your purpose. But anyway, I didn't go to the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. I turned it down after all this training to pursue rock and roll. It took four years to get my big break. But um, but I learned to write music. And the way I would learn what a drummer did for a record or for a tour I'd write out every, I listen, I write every single crash, Tom, Tom, Phil, kick drum, snare drum. So if, uh, and this happened, Melissa Etheridge wanted me to join her tour that was already, they'd been on the road for three years. They wanted me to do the last six months and I had to learn a three hour show and I only had nine hours to, to rehearse with them because I was uh, doing sessions. So I had written everything I'd say up till two or three in the morning, write everything out. And for the first two and a half weeks on tour, I was reading the music and looking at her. I had all the tempos, all the cues, everything written out. And that's how I do it. Do you, do you listen to like a metronome or click track on stage? Sometimes. I mean, certain tours like with Bob Seeger, he wanted very, very, uh, very aware of tempo. And he would literally, like sometimes when you go play the piano, he'd say, hey, Kenny, let's do that at 83 tonight, not 84. You know? And he could he had a, a great recall of tempo. Mellencamp, I explained to him, dude, you know, <clears throat> we were young, you know? You play in front of 20,000 people, you get excited. I said, I think um, we should play to a click track or at least start the song with a click because we sound very uh, amateur. And so John was cool with it. What I would do is I had a foot switch that would start the, the, the uh, drum machine that had a tempo and I'd play to that. And then during the song, I'd, I'd shut it off and I'd advance it to the next song or my drum tech would do that and then start it again. As soon as the song's over, the new tempo. Because, I mean, if you go from 94 to 98, that's very close. And, it's very close, but it's noticeable for you, right? And noticeable for the guy singing. Because he's trying to get all those lyrics out. And then sometimes... Four beats faster on average. Yeah. And, and then John would turn around sometimes and go... Wah, 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 wah. It's like, it's not fast. It's what's wrong the tempo. And I'd go like this. We're playing to the click. He was just hu- pumped, hyped, or angry. And he'd want everything faster. And I'd go... And he'd, he'd bow down to the click. You, you had some training with Vic Firth as well. Yeah, so Vic Firth, for the people who don't know, it was the, the timpanist in the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And, and uh, when I was studying timpani with him and eventually had to audition to be in the number one student orchestra in America, if not the world, run by the Boston Symphony Orchestra at Tanglewood in Western Mass, home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra in the summer, I auditioned four consecutive years to be part of that very exclusive group, seven percussionists in the world. And Vic was the guy I auditioned for. And during those four years, I started studying with him. He was an incredible teacher. But if, and I would practice five hours a day on timpani for him. And if you 
made a mistake in your lesson, he would show you what you did wrong. And if you made it again, you're done. You got to do it next week. He didn't waste any time. He was, he, he was, and then he, he started making timpani mallets and marimba mallets and sticks. And then he became the biggest stick company in the world. I was, I watched him do it. It was unbelievable. Incredible businessman. They sponsor you. Oh yeah. I have my own signature stick. You got to send me one, man. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you guys, here, I mean, I, I, you want to see my studio? Yeah, sure. Check this out, everybody. So this is my control room. This is where, you know, obviously I, I'll be recording today. That's all my stuff. But you go outside this way. And by the way, I just set up my marimba. Can you see that, uh, the marimba? This um, is the first time I've set this thing up uh, wow. in 40 years. And then you go in here, and there's where I record the drums. Wow, that's that's where the beatings get laid down. Yeah, and there's uh, should be my signature stick. There it is. Can you see that? That's the Kenny Arnold signature stick. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Right. Worlds collided pretty well. You, you train with him now. Yet now you're you're sponsored by him. It. it it, incredible, and you know, I mean, it, it worked. It, it worked out for for everybody. Uh, sadly, Vic's not with us anymore. But um, you know, well, was there ever a time where he sent you home? He never sent me home. We just get through the. If I wasn't prepared, which was rare, but one time, I early in the day, early in the lessons, I learned very quickly. If you're not prepared, the 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 one hour lesson could be done in fifteen minutes. <laughs> And then, we'd have, and then we'd have lunch and, and, and talk. But he was all about business. He didn't want to waste time. And I get it now. You know, uh, I get it because I'm the same way. I, I don't have enough hours in the, the day to do what I want to do. So you, you were drumming at school. But at first, when you first wanted to become a drummer, you want to be part of the Beatles. And then what? And the Beatles has influenced so many big musicians. What's your favorite album from the Beatles or favorite song? Oh, that's hard because there's so many. Every, you know, they just, their styles change so much. You know, you go from like, you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 to Michelle on Rubber Soul, my bell, you know. And then you get into uh, back, you go back and there's help, help, you know, more poppy. And then it got, you know, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. And then got with all that psychedelic shit, you know, and, and, and for the people who don't know, I mean, the Beatles put out Rubber Soul, which was a huge diver, diversion from anything they had done uh, after them becoming huge and dominating the world. And, um, they affected, you know, Canada and uh, the USA. 72 million people saw them on the Ed Sullivan show, as I did. Changed my life. And then they went back home after a couple of years of being big, and the band just was exhausted. But Paul went out running around London and watching and observing while culture was changing fast in the free world. He came back to them with songs like that were on Rubber Soul, which was a huge diversion from anything they'd done. Then the next record which is completely different from Rubber Soul, was Revolver. 
And that got trippy. And now they started to take over the Abbey Road recording studio, told the engineers to leave. They had their own engineer. And of course, um, uh, you know, their producer, who actually also engineered too. Uh, and uh, he, uh, they, they, they started experimenting and creating new sounds. And then um, the next record was Sgt. Pepper's. Now it got so deep in, in experimenting with techniques and stuff, they couldn't even play the music live. And then uh, Magical Mystery Tour, which came after that, which was even completely different. Those four records with 48 songs that got played on the radio were made in one year in 11 months. And and my, my teacher in school told me that he fell in love with the Beatles when they came to Maple Leaf Gardens, which is where, you know, this jersey is from. Yeah. Uh, and he said that he wanted to go see the Beatles. Wow. And it was so loud that you couldn't even hear them on stage. Yeah. Yeah, back then, they didn't, the PAs were so small, they didn't, they, they, there were more people wanting to see them than they had the equipment to get the sound to these people. When you ask me my favorite song, I, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, I always try and stump my, my, my artists or uh, people I interview, you know, it's uh, there, that'll be something you'll, you'll answer me back maybe in a few yeah. years. That's tough, man. That's like, who do you like better? Uh, Mick Jagger st- playing. Who do you like better recording with Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, uh, you know, a sting uh, Elton John. I'm like, what? How do you pick? It, it's, it's, well, for me, I, I could pick one person, but maybe I'll go into the studio and not like recording with them. You, yeah. you, you could actually sit and be like, okay, well, this is the disadvantage of recording with Sting or, you know, Paul McCartney or whatever. So you've, you've got the advantage over me, but yeah. you, we, we talked about off the air. You have a hockey story. That's completely insane. Oh, this is great. All right. So um, I'm a big sports guy. Uh, I played sports my whole life. And You're a hockey I was, fan? I was a big hockey fan, but I didn't play hockey like, like on a team. So I went to a small Western Mass. So we, I was a Bruins fan. So Western Mass, uh, I played lacrosse, soccer, and a downhill skier. And I was a varsity, which means you're the, the number one team, starting in my sophomore year in high school. So at 16, I was already a three-letterman jock and a hippie rock, rock and roll musician. But um, so uh, so – uh, I, I'm with Mellencamp. We're selling out all the big hockey arenas around the country, and we're huge. And we fly in on a private jet the night before, which is a day off. Next day, we're playing at the um, we're gonna play at the Boston Gardens, and where the Bruins play. And actually, I think at that time it wasn't hockey season; it was uh, you know the Celtics basketball season. Anyway, we go to a Celtics game. That's right. I went to a Celtics game, and uh, Larry Bird's playing. Parish. Mikhail, I mean, the superstars. So we, Larry Malter, who ran that place, uh, said, hey, you know, we went up to his sweet office. He says, how would you like a Larry Bird, uh, how would you like a Celtics jer- a jacket? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm a mass, I grew up in Massachusetts. He gave it to me, had Larry Bird, Parrish, and Mikhail's signatures on it. And they came to the concert the next day, next night, all those guys. And Larry you still Bird. have the jacket? I still do. And Larry Bird had, um, he was from Indiana, so he, he loved us. Anyway, but here's the hockey part. So I walk out, 
after you know the, the end of the show, we're going to do an encore, and that's where John introduces us. John looks at me, and I'm wearing the Celtics jacket. And John goes, that is so uncool. He gives me the finger, and I'm like, you want me to take it off? Boston Gardens is going apeshit, 360 around us. They're going crazy. And they know I'm from Massachusetts. I'm wearing it. I said, you want me to take it off? He says, yeah, I take it off. And it's Phil Epizzito's, Epizzito's oh. jersey with blood all over it. And I had the Boston Bruins Phil Esposito's, you know, hockey jersey on with blood on it. The people went crazy. People go crazy. Hockey, hockey's a, it's a culture, you know. Um, there's a lot of sports out there that, that have their own, own uh, you know, community around. Oh, yeah. Um, like the sport, but there's nothing as quite tight knit as the NHL, the hockey, like lifestyle, because these players, they can walk around and maybe half, not even anybody would even know them if they went to Europe. I know that's the difference between them and like an NFL player. I mean, even if you don't know who they are, you know, holy shit. Yeah. They're someone because they're massive. They're massive, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? That's true. The hockey players are more invisible because they got the helmets on. It's just the, they got all that gear on. You know, well, I guess the football players do too, but but they're so massive. It's obvious when you're a lineman in football. Oh, my God. There's, there's, there's a hockey player. He plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs up here, and he's from my hometown, and he, he's kind of a tough guy. And I saw him at the gas station, and I was like, this guy's pretty small. I could probably take him, you know? <laughs> Oh, off skates, probably. On skates, he could probably take me because I'm not that good of a skater. Uh, describe, like, you know, people trying to play drums. Uh, what What is something that happened to you when you were like, I can do this? How, finding finding um, the in- inspiration to play drums full-time or um, going to into it. Like, I mean, finding the passion and, 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 find, and finding the determination to go through with it. Well, first of all, I mean, my energy is perfect for drumming. I mean, I mean, my mom tried to get me in piano, and I did piano. But after I saw the Beatles on TV and the way Ringo's drums and he was way up high, I just wanted to be doing that. I wanted to be part of rock and roll. I wanted to be in the Beatles, like you said. I asked my mom to call them up. She didn't call them up. I'm 10 years old. And I wanted a drum set, but we didn't have money. So I got a snare drum and a cymbal, stood up and played. And we learned Beatles music. I started a band. And, man, I shut my eyes. I think I was even playing with brushes. I was, you know, because we were, we, you know, the amps were small back then. But anyway, the bottom line is it was the love and passion and really realizing what my purpose in life is before I even knew what that meant. I just was emotionally drawn to rock and roll the energy and the drums so i picked the drums and it felt so good to be playing a beat even though it was snare drum and high cymbal and i was part of this music thing and i felt like i was in the beatles when i shut my eyes and play if i fell in love with you would you promise to be true and you know help me you know and i just you know i saw a hard day's night in the movie theater and then help. And I mean, it just was a, it was my whole life. And I started playing drums and it was more about being part of rock and roll and that energy. And my energy was, like I said, was suited for the drums. And then it just built and just built and built and got bigger and bigger. 
And uh, I studied classical music, always playing drum set at night, you know, with clubs. I play any gig, I didn't care it was jazz, fusion, country, R&B, funk, anything to do with drums because it felt good to play the drums. It felt good mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So why wouldn't I do it? It takes 100% energy, right? Oh, absolutely. I train. I have to train. You know, I have to be, uh, you know, I have an, I have a, a thing. I won't uh, give you the details now, but I have the eight steps to a healthy life, which makes you healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Eight steps. And it's, it's diet and, and, you know, uh, you know, lifting weights, uh, cardio and flexibility with stretching and then supplements, water, meditation, and sleep. I think that's all of it. And all those things combined, you know, it's just good to be aware of those things to make you perform at the level you want. And I, and when I get down on a set of drums, as soon as I start playing, like in a live situation, I identify what condition I'm in. Cause you know, your body traveling, how much you drank the night before, how much, you, how you slept, you know, you have to identify what your body's condition is so you can work with it. I'm totally looking at it that way. That's being like a professional athlete. They examine the status of their physical, mental, and emotional condition so they know what they're working with and can execute the highest level. How has your, 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 your playing evolved over the years then? Because you're aging, right? You have to keep yourself in shape. Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, there's all kinds of things, you know, you adjust. You used to pinch the stick, you know, like, um, you know, like, you know, when I was studying uh, classical, you would, um, you would, you'd use the first finger and the thumb to, uh, you know, to hold the stick and playing marimba, you had to lift with your wrist to get off the marimba because the marimba didn't bounce. The 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 yarn mallet would hit and would just die. So you were training to lift. And with timpani, you used your fingers like this because you, you wanted the stick to come off to get tone. And so, and then with snare drum, you'd use both those techniques. In rock and roll, I started to use my arm and then my back and my whole body and then my grip changed to instead of these two fingers as the main thing, it went to the back fingers. Because when you grip hard here and you hit the drum, you can get carpal tunnel. There's all kinds of adjustments I made. But stylistically, you know, obviously I became known as the less is more drummers, you know, laying it down like uh, John Bonham uh, playing Cashmere or Phil Rudd uh, playing Back in Black with ACDC. Uh, and that's what I learned how to serve John Mellencamp's music. Basically my job always when I'm making records to get the song on the radio to be number one. It's not about me. It's about we, the band. I didn't know that. You spend a billion hours learning how to play drums, how you look, how you feel, what's your wrist doing, what's your arm doing, what's your, what's your time, what's your groove, are you playing the right notes? Me, 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 eight hours a day playing. And now to get to the next level, it's not about me. It's about we. It's about getting that song on the radio. So if you get a number one hit single like Belinda Carlisle or Heaven on Earth or Jack and Diane Mellencamp or Blaze of Glory or Bon Jovi or I'll Do Anything for Love But I Won't Do That, Meatloaf, when that song's number one, you get the Super Bowl ring. Everybody in the band gets the Super Bowl ring. You're on a number one hit single. And I'm not talking about charts because I hear people talking like, yeah, I'm on 20 number one hit singles. 20? What chart are you talking about? 
Are you talking about the top 100 of all the, all, you know, that means you're competing with Justin Bieber and you're competing with rap and you're competing with Van Halen. There are charts where there's like, you know, number one on that chart doesn't mean shit. These are the charts. I'm talking about the big top 100 singles on top, you know, 40 radio uh, when it really mattered. But the point is being in a band is all about being on a team and it's about what you can contribute to help that band and that team do excellent work. So if I'm playing with Mellencamp, I had to serve that man his music. When I play with Joe Satriani and I'm on that record, by the way, unbelievable shape-shifting entered the charts at number eight. Wow. No vocal, no vocals. Top 100 album charts, number eight. When I, uh, that's big, you guys. That's like he's competing with all, you know, all Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, whoever's big right now. He came in at number eight. Point. But my style of playing on that record is completely different than Mellencamp. And a little bit more technique. Uh, then if I'm playing with, um, let me pick up the Buddy Rich Big Band. I recorded two songs with Buddy Rich. Neil Pert was the producer from Rush. That's where we became friends. And um, I mean, I'm playing jazz. Now, as a kid, I played jazz, but I had to tap back into that. When I, that marimba I showed you, I won a violin concerto on marimba. I played a violin concerto. I'd learned, I practiced that violin concerto for two hours a day for one year. And it was one of four pieces for my senior recital. And I did such, and I would listen to the virtuoso Israeli violinist, Itzhak Perlman, play this piece uh, and get his style down, his phrasing. All on marimba. Last page was all on marimba. I won a concerto competition with that piece and was with a 60-piece orchestra in a music hall at Indiana University the size of the New York Met. Uh, and dude, that has nothing to do with drumming as far as boom, boom, crash, boom, boom, crash. Once again, I was serving the style of music I was playing and I got deep into it. I wasn't playing that marimba like a drum set. I was trying to be a violinist. And I even took a master class with the virtuoso violin and teacher at Indiana University. All violinists, him, piano player, and me. And they're looking at me like, like, who the friggin' are you being in a master class, a violin master class with a marimba? They look down at me. But that teacher taught me phrasing and, and tone, and it was unbelievable. Anyway, I'm, I'm giving you diverse... Uh, uh, you got to get into the song, right? You got to get the feel of the song. You got to study it, uh, see what everyone's got to do and listen to it, right? Don't just start playing. Uh, yeah, well, you, you have to... There's a great book I'm reading by Keith Faraz, Fersasi, and it's about teamwork at, another, at the newest level. My job, first of all, Somebody hires me because I'm going to be a good guy on their team. I'm going to I have the right attitude. I have great communication skills. They know that I'm going to be creative and innovative, collaborate, serve the song, come up with ideas that not are just good for me, but for the song and the artist. 
to get on the radio. But it gets deeper than that. Keith talks about the ultimate team now is it's you work without authority, meaning I get hired because they believe in me and they let me do my thing because they trust that I know more about what I'm doing than they do. At any moment, they can come in and say something, but they primarily want me to be me. They picked me because they know I'm a general. I'm a, I, I will take orders because I'm not the boss, but I can work without authority above me. There are some producers who are like, they try to tell you every note you play. I'm like, why did you hire me? As a matter of fact, well, I won't even mention this. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say on that Belinda Carlisle, that Belinda Carlisle song, they kept going, no, don't do that. No, do that. No, don't do that. No, do that. Do, no, don't do that. What, what about that? I'm like, dude, you want me to play exactly what the pro, the drum machine was playing. That's what they ended up, they fell in love with it. So what I do in that case is like, okay, I go time out. That's when I learned I'm going to write every single note out. And then I go, how's this? I'm playing along with the machine, the program. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, and but before I got there, they were calling me like, what mics do you use? What snare them? What this? What that? We want that sound that you get on the Mellencamp records. But when I got there, they were trying to control me. But me being smart, I went, okay, that's the situation I'm in. No problem. I want to be on a hit single. And that went to number one. So you got in, you did your job, you focused on what you had to do and you got out and what, what an awesome result. Yeah. Obviously I've heard that song like a billion times and you know, it gets a bit annoying sometimes, but now that I hear that you had a bit of a hard time with that. Do, do, do a lot of these producers show you what they want before you go into the studio? Well, everybody, like I said, sends me a demo when, they, when people record with me, let's say you want me to play on your record, I ask you, you can either send me the Pro Tools files and then I just pop them up on my screen like, um, let's see, like, here's a session I'll be recording today. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? I can see like a flash of light, man, but... Okay, all right. It's all so what is, I, bring, I open up the Pro Tools files and it's all the tracks. Or you send me an MP3 of the song, the demo with uh, the little drum program you have, and I write that out. Then I have you send an MP3 without the drum program, because I'm going to play to that, and send me an MP3 with a click track that you used. I want to make sure you recorded with a click track so that I can lock up. Now, here's the next question. I say, do you are you keeping any of the parts that I'm hearing? Because if you say yes, and you're not totally with the click, I turn the click down and follow you. So that it sounds like we played together. If they say, no, no, we're going to replace everything. We're going to play to you. I turn the music down, bring the click up and play very precise to the click. And then I ask a few other questions like, what's your sample rate? Do you use Pro Tools or use Logic? Because I want to save my files so that you can open them up on your uh, computer. And that's it. And people, I'm going to do three songs for Paul Zuno. uh, One song for, uh, which is kind of more straight ahead like the cars and then this guy, Michael Rosenfield, it's more techno with real drums. And then there's this other kid from East coast. It's more like uh, U2. And then 
You're like yeah. a kid in the candy store. Yeah. Oh, dude, I can do. I can do. Oh, and then there's another girl, and the, and the uh, one of the managers is coming today. It was kind of like um, she's a new artist, really beautiful voice. It's kind of like you know Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Absolutely. So it's, so it's a lot of piano and singing. It's just piano. Larry Nectel, who I recorded with, genius piano part. And then it builds. It keeps building at the end. Of, there's a little snare drum part and timpani, and you know it gets. So I was listening to their song, and I was like, after the, there's a bridge after the second chorus, and then there's a chorus that kind of drops down. Then it gets big, but I felt like it didn't get big enough. There was just timpani. There was no drums. There was no bass. So I said, you know, they asked me my opinion. I said, I really think you should add some something like a I I came up with a real simple drum part like dude god dude god good god good good god and I wrote all the timpani parts out and I'm gonna do a, a version with just the groove a version with groove and fills a version with just fills so they can decide maybe we just want the fills to go with the timpani, or maybe we want just the drum groove, let the timpani do the fills, whatever they want. And then I'm gonna put a little marching drum underneath it, like on uh, Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Just to drive it at the end. Real simple, nothing like, cause her voice keeps singing this chorus and it's getting bigger and I'm like, there's no support. That was my vision. And I'm going to do it, and they can use it or not. You know, you keep, you keep it fresh. And and I want to I want to back up there for a second. Uh, about like what, a couple minutes ago, we talked about Neil Peart. Uh, he was a very good friend of yours. He is also Canadian. And, and he wrote the forward to my book. What? Yes. Look at forward by Neil Peart. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. You to, know why? To be to be yeah. on that top list of drummers of all time, Kenny Aronoff and Neil Peart. He's obviously a very good friend of yours as well. How does it feel? Oh my God. Well, first of all, I mean, people, you know, sadly he died recently and uh, they asked me what I think about his drumming. And, and all I can say is this, or I'll say this, Neil, you know, you have a lot of great drummers, a lot out there, but Neil and Rush created their own island. It's like another island. They created their own country on the world. Neil created a, a, an incredible style of drumming, uh, you know, odd meter, what, without getting into it. He created his own style of drumming that influenced a lot of people, including myself, even though I, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And Neil did it. Now, so... This is a great story. So I did two tracks on the Buddy Rich Burning for Buddy album on Atlantic Records that Neil produced with Buddy Rich's daughter, Kathy Rich. So that was that. Uh, maybe that same year I was in uh, outside of Montreal at a really famous studio called Morin Heights that Rush used to record at. Beautiful on a lake, just gorgeous. And I was up there with Corey Hart. Uh, another, you know, a Montreal. Uh, I know that Montreal. guy. Yeah. So Corey and I are really good friends. And Corey wanted me to uh, play uh, songs on this, on his, on Julie Moss, his, his wife at now. 
And uh, that's when he was falling in love with her. And I was like, dude, I see it. I feel it. I can relate to it. So anyway, we're recording. And all of a sudden, Neil Pert's head pops in. All I see is his head. Can you imagine what I'm thinking? What the hell are you doing here? And then I went, oh, yeah, Canada, Montreal, maybe as a place. I don't know. So he says, basically what he was doing, he was mixing the Buddy Rich uh, album. But it is a song called Pick Up the Pieces, Average White Band, uh, that Steve Ferroni from Tom Petty had played that recording uh, with uh, Buddy Rich band playing it. But there was a 12-measure thing where he was supposed to do a drum solo, and he didn't want to do it. He just wanted to groove. So Neil said, do you, you want to do a percussion thing? Let's do a percussion thing together. Well, dude, I, I had learned how to build percussion tracks with from low instruments to high on Mellencamp, as the years went on with Mellencamp, I had to be creative in different ways. And I did it with percussion, really creating innovative, weird loops and stuff. So I went, yeah. So Neil and I did that. We sat facing each other and spent hours doing it. And then Neil said, um, I guess I had the, the rest of the or dinner off. And so I went with him in one of his hot rods, old cars, listening to big band jazz. He talks about that in the forward. And then we listened to the Buddy Rich big band stuff. We, I think we had some scotch. Might have had a couple of hits on a, some pot. And we listened and, oh, my God, his house was gorgeous. And he was showing me how his daughter and, and wife will go to that island over there. And they do Morse code with each other at night. And... um it was great. And then he drove me back to where I was staying and we became friends ever since. And, um, and, and, and uh, when it was time to come up with someone to be the forward to my book, there were two people I was thinking of. And one was Tom Hanks because I did that thing you do movie and Tom loves me. And he, every time he sees me, he's like, Kenny, you know, I'm like, well, wouldn't that be cool? Cause he loved me as a drummer. You know, when that did, he told the producer, God, can you get a, drummer like that Kenny Aronoff guy with Mellencamp and Don was a producer said that's who I hired so that was really funny so I was trying to get Tom but for whatever reason nobody got the message to him or he was too busy so I thought if I had a drummer it's got to be Neil Pert because Neil is into sports like I am Neil grew up playing swing like I did and Neil ended up being a rock drummer like me there were too many things that were the same and I thought he would understand me. I sent him, he asked me to send a couple of chapters and then he wrote this exquisite, incredible, um, you know, a forward to my book. That's very, that's unreal. Obviously yeah. Tom Hanks, I, I don't know if, I don't know if he would use a computer to do it or a typewriter cause he, he collects so many typewriters and uh, you know, Neil Peart, his legacy will, will live on forever. Rush yeah. is humongous. And some people don't understand Rush, but those of us who do, we're privileged to have our minds blown constantly by that band. And, and finally, I want to say this, man. You wanted to be part of rock and roll. You became rock and roll. You became rock and roll history. And I'm very privileged to have talked to you on this show. And I hope <laughs> to do it again soon. Dude, that was great. Anytime, dude. And uh, thank you for having me and uh, keep playing the bass and we should start our own mu music hockey league. That'd be pretty interesting. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of booze and a lot of uh, fun to follow. Yeah. Well, I used to play hockey with Mellencamp on his lake. 
We had our own, the Mellon Cap Hockey League. <laughs> I, I can coach or be goalie for you guys if you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who we call up. We probably call up maybe, uh, maybe Getty Lee would actually want to play. That's actually, just, just he's more into baseball though. You know what? We'll just, let's, we'd have to start with the Canadian musicians. Most of them probably played hockey. Exactly. Take care, man. All right. Take care. Thank you.